beings went hundreds of years without knowing anything about microbes. Ed Young will be here to talk about I Contain Multitudes, about microbes and their relationship with the human body. You know, when I eat a salad, I'm not just nourishing myself, I'm nourishing this entire world inside me that is part of me and is important for me. We have a new columnist at the Book Review, and it's the brilliant essayist and critic Megan Daum. This week, her first column on memoirs, egos, debuts in the Book Review. So the theme uh, for this column is uh, stories of not only coming out, but reparative therapy, ex-gay therapy, as it's called. Also, Alexander Alter will join us with news from the literary world. And Greg Coles, John Williams, and I will talk about what we and other people are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Ed Young joins us now. He is the author of I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us, and A Grander View of Life. Ed, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So um, I have to say, you're sitting in front of me and you're like half my age and you have an amazing uh, resume somehow at that age of 23 or whatever. You're on the staff at The Atlantic. You have your own blog, Not Exactly Rocket Science, hosted by National Geographic magazine. You uh, have written for The New Yorker, Wired, for us at The Times, Nature, News Scientist, The Guardian, The Times, Discover, and Slate. And don't you have an advanced degree in, what is it? Uh, so I did natural sciences at university. And you, is it a PhD that you have? Or no, no, no. I was the world's worst PhD student. So I started doing a, a PhD for a couple of years uh, and flunked out. Um, and uh, for the for the sake of my my health and the safety of my lab mates, I decided to um, move into write, writing about science instead of actually doing it. Okay. Well, you not only do that, and then you also live part time, as as our listeners can hear, in London and uh, in DC. And on top of that, only half of your cells are human. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So can yeah. you explain that? <laughs> okay. So uh, the average human body has around 37 trillion microbes, so bacteria and other microscopic organisms. Um, and that's roughly one for each of our actual human cells. Um, so really, even though I'm sitting here seemingly alone, um, I look like one individual in one body. I'm actually multitudes. I, I'm a colony, like a collective of um, many different organisms. Organisms. And, and all of these other creatures, they're not just stowaways, they're not just hitchhikers. They are really crucial and important parts of my life. And they profoundly influence everything from my health to my immunity, my, the gr- my growth as I, as I went from a single cell to an adult. Um, and that's the same whether we're talking about me, you, every other animal around, every elephant and ant, every you know, hawk and hummingbird is, um, is a collection of uh, microbes uh, and and other small organisms that we cannot see. So I feel like between this fact and the other crazy fact that people often say about what percentage of our bodies are actually water, you know, that we're almost <laughs> like as much water in us as in a watermelon, um, I feel like what's left? You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, but microbes seem to be kind of having a moment, like there, there are many, many books mm-hmm. out right now about microbiology. Is that because of recent advances in the field? Yeah, I think this area has really taken off in the last 10 years, and there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One is technological 
cycle. So it used to be the case that you could only study microbes by growing them in the laboratory. And it's that's very hard because a lot of these things live in, like they hate oxygen. Um, they are very difficult to grow on a Petri dish. But now um, genetic technologies have advanced to the point where you can just swab, like I can take a swab of my skin, this newspaper, this microphone, and I could split apart all the microbes in it and sequence their DNA. And through that, I can uh, I can get a full inventory of everything that's there. And that really has allowed us to, to catalog the extent of the microbiome. And then other techniques have allowed us to, to really look at um, what these, what these microbes are actually doing. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that um, the the field is maturing. So this this area of science sprouted up in lots of different disciplines in biology that were all very separate. So we had zoologists, botanists, um, medical people, um, immunologists, all studying different aspects of this world separate individually and then they all started coming together they sort of they formed um they formed links and connections between them they all realized that they were looking at these microbial foundations that underlie all of biology which i think is a you know is fitting with the themes of the book right it's all about unity and, and symbiosis and, and cooperation and that's you know when you see that um among the scientists as well um, that's that's why we understand those themes in nature. Does microbiology's origins in all these various uh, disciplines mean there isn't sort of one person, like we can't say, hey, Louis Pasteur, you know, you mm-hmm. you discovered the microbe, or is there someone who yeah, there was is. the first? Yeah, there is. There uh, is. His name is Anthony van Leeuwenhoek, um, and I've probably mangled the oh, pronunciation. I was admiring <laughs> it, actually. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Apologies to any Dutch listeners here. Um, he, was a, he was a Dutch person in the late 17th century, and he was not... Um, you know, he was not a trained scientist, um, but he uh, had amazing um, microscopes, which he built himself. And they were so much better than anything else around in the day. And he trained them on everything that he could find in the world around him because he was deeply curious. And he saw these microscopic organisms moving, clearly alive, clearly animated, and clearly everywhere. They were in water. They were in the dental plaque on his teeth. Um, and he... I mean, that it just blows my mind, that moment in time when we went from not knowing that these things existed to knowing, mm-hmm. um, when he became the first person in the history of the entire world to see microbes for the first time. Did he record his thoughts at that moment? Yeah, he did. Um, he, he drew some very pretty diagrams. Um, he wrote extensive letters to the Royal Society, the most eminent scientific organization of the time. Um, his papers are, are fantastic because he's, he's not a scholar, so it doesn't have that kind of stuffy tone that a lot of scientific papers has. It reads almost like a blog post. Like he goes into these ridiculous tangents about like the weather in the Netherlands at the time and like what what his house is like. He's, um, but he talks about he talks about microbes. He describes them in beautiful prose. He talks about them moving like spinning tops or, or fish darting through the water. And it's clear right from the start that he's so excited about this world. You know, he's this. We bring so much cultural baggage to the world of microbes now. We think that we think of them as things to avoid or to kill, but um, not Lovenhoek. He was he was excited. He was he was uh, in awe of this world that he had seen. So when did microbes get such a bad name? When did they become bacteria and right, you know, right. badness? And so a few centuries later, yeah, when when um, people like uh, Pasteur 
really confirmed the germ theory of disease. They mm-hmm. showed that all of these illnesses, which have been plaguing、um, humanity for you know since time immemorial, like tuberculosis, plague,、um, cholera, all of these were established as having a microbial cause. Like year after one year after the other, more and more microbes behind diseases were discovered, and that inevitably led them to be cast as villains. Everyone focused on the infectious side of microbiology, and that is by far the the vast minority of microbes.、Um, only a small proportion cause disease, and the vast majority are either. Benign. They're important parts of the environment, and they are important parts of us. And yet,、um, we have this, you know, fervent desire to be cleansed、mm-hmm. of these invaders, as we right, see them,、yeah. um, uh, with our antibacterial wipes and our.、Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm curious. Do you use antibacterial wipes and soaps and things? No, I don't.、Um, you know, I'll wash my hands after I go to the toilet, sure. And I think like that that sort of stuff is very important in some settings, like hospitals, obviously.、Um, but no, I, I don't. And it, it is shocking to see just how prevalent these products are. I and mean, when I was reporting、uh, for this book,、um, I was staying in this hotel and I picked up the phone to make a call, and it said antibacterial hand set on it. I don't even know what what how you make a hand set antibacterial, but there we go.、Um, And yeah, I think we have, we have gone to a bit too far with it, and we can see some of the consequences of that around us. There's a there's a lot of evidence now suggesting that our limited exposure to microbes,、um, particularly at an early age, the hygiene hypothesis, right? That's right. Might be increasing our risk of allergies and inflammatory diseases because we can see that bacteria and other microbes help to calibrate our immune system. So they help to they help to build, they stimulate the growth of certain types of immune cells. And they set the balance between reaction that will help to、um, pr- stop infections and overreaction that will cause us to go berserk at everything, you know, harmless things in the world around us—dust, pollen, the like. You also see a kind of obsession with microbes right now with diet and the way people are eating. Like、mm-hmm. at first there was that whole blood type diet thing, but now everything is about the gut、mm-hmm. and who else is in there and should、mm-hmm. you eat accordingly. What、mm-hmm. do, What do you make of all that? So. I I feel that we're only really at the start of understanding our microbiome at all, the the players that are there, how they interact with us, and then what foods are going to to nourish them. So there are some clear things, like for example, dietary fiber、um, nourishes a wide diversity of microbes. So I'm always keen to think about this in in an ecological frame, by which I mean there's this large community inside us. So if we feed them with fiber, which consists of a large array of Different plant carbohydrates. We're giving lots of varied food sources, and、um, one microbe might be able to eat this bit. Another might be able to eat this bit. So you can nourish this wide community, and that's why fiber is important. Then again, I could argue that fiber has been important for a long time. Right? We've been told to eat fiber for as long as I can remember. So the microbial side of thing, it, it's it. Enhances that old message. It gives a new twist on it. But I don't think it's so far telling us dietary messages that we didn't already know and were aware of.、Um, it's just emphasizing that when when I eat, you know, when I eat a salad, I'm not just nourishing myself. I'm nourishing this entire world inside me that is part of me and is important for me. It's like we're all pregnant all the time <laughs> <Right> . with many little teeny babies. <laughs> <Yeah> . What do recent advances in microbiology tell us about? Um, or change our understanding of evolution. So the 
The critical thing about um, the way microbes affect our evolution is that they make it really fast. Um, so it's not that we're doing anything different. We're still changing according to the same old rules of Darwinian evolution. But rather than having to adapt to challenges by very gradually building up um, changes in our genomes, we can very quickly partner with microbes that already have those adaptations. Um, so they've gone through the gradual changes and we're just picking them up. It's like um, if you have a, a a skill deficit in your company. You can either train your employees and that will take time or you can just recruit people who can do the job. And we see loads of examples of that in the in the uh, animal kingdom. We have um, bugs in Japan that can become instantly resistant to insecticides if they swallow microbes in the soil that can detoxify those chemicals. There are um, rats that be similarly can become instantly immune to poisons in plants if they have the right microbes in them and suddenly they can eat this wide range of food in their environment. So for centuries, Japanese people have been harvesting um, seaweed from the ocean to make nori, um, that, you know, that wrap that currently goes on around sushi. Um, and they used to eat it raw, which meant that they would swallow marine microbes that lived on the seaweed and were already really good at breaking down the unique blend of carbohydrates on, on those foods. Mm -hmm. Those marine microbes went into, our, into the guts of those people, and they met their gut microbes. And when bacteria meet, they can do this incredible thing, which is just baffling to us. They can swap DNA. So, you know, you and I can only send DNA down to children. We mm -hmm. can only inherit vertically. But a bacterium can trade genes so I could, re you know, if we were bacteria, I could reach out and give you some of my genes now. And that's what happens. So the marine microbes gave their seaweed-busting genes to gut microbes, which then passed down from one person to another, which is why, to this date, um, Japanese people have gut microbiomes that are better at digesting the carbohydrates in sushi which I think is incredible. It just shows like how, how quickly um, our microbes allow us to, to adapt to the things in the world around us. I think uh, our literary listeners will appreciate your title, uh, <laughs> which uh, explain, I contain multitudes. So it's obviously a quote from uh, Walt Whitman. Um, and I wanted a title that said, uh, this is not just going to be like a stuffy science book. Um, Hi, I've read a poem too. <laughs> but I, I think it's one Scientists wondrous. are human too. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I, I wanted a title. Half human. That, <laughs> half human, that's right. Um, my bacteria have read the poem too. <laughs> I've, I've read to them. I wanted a title that conveyed this grandeur, you know, this, um, this expanded view of the world around us. Whitman's, Whitman said it best. Um, mm. I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful sentiment. It's a quote from Leaves of Grass. Yeah, so the, I mean the sent the subtitle is also a literary reference in a slightly veiled way. So in on the origin of species, Darwin ended uh, with this wonderful thing about um, a, a tangled bank, and he mm -hmm. talks about all these organisms living on a bank, and he talks about this. Uh, he says there is grandeur in this view of life. Um, so the grander view of life is a slight play on what Darwin wrote. It would be so tempting to end on that note, but it would um, mean that we wouldn't get to talk about some of the very freaky things that are in here. You mm -hmm. said that some of it does freak people out. Tell us about armpits. <laughs> right. So I feel like to talk about armpits, I feel I first need to explain about hyenas. Um, so hyenas are uh, very social animals, and they produce this paste um, from their backsides that is 
full of microbes. So they have these glands that are full of microbes that make this paste that release scent into the atmosphere. And the scent varies depending on the hyena's age, uh, their sex, their um, sexual status. Um, so the hyenas are basically writing a an autobiography in bacterial odors um, using using this stuff. Um, and it turns out a lot of animals might do that. So you know the smells that we release from our armpit odors um, are you know bacterial scents. They are they are the byproducts of the microbes that live on us um, and the, the chemical reactions that they carry out. Um, so maybe um, you know we are we are releasing microbe written autobiographies into the world around us. Maybe some of us could do stand to do with doing that less. But it's not just that our microbes are affecting our own bodies. They are expanding out into the world around us. You and know. you have a different biome in each armpit. Possibly, you're right. And certainly from the rest of your body. I mean, the, we, I talk about um, individuals as ecosystems, but really each individual is many ecosystems. You know, my, my forearm is dry and exposed and barren, so it's more like a desert, um, whereas like my mouth is humid um, and hot, which is more like a rainforest. So we have all these different types of habitats on us, and I think that's, that's wonderful to think about. You know, if you look at like a picture of the Earth from space, you can see forests and oceans and deserts and snowy, snowy tundra, all of those different kinds of environments exist within us too. All right. So Whitman, Darwin, and armpit bacteria, <laughs> um, all in this book, appropriately titled, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life by Ed Yang. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Alexander Alter joins us now with news from the literary world. And also, she has a cold, so we will be very forgiving of her scratchy voice. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. Thank you. I appreciate that. So there was a lot of turmoil this week at Barnes & Noble. The company has been struggling in recent years, going up against Amazon and really suffering from all the investments that they made in their Nook e-reader device. And they've cycled through three different chief executives in the last three years. The latest one to get the ax was Ron Bauer. He started last September, so his tenure was extremely short. And it sort of signals more turmoil at the company. Analysts were expecting him to really draw on his retail experience. He was at Toys R Us. He was at Sears Canada. And so he was really emphasizing Barnes & Noble's toys and games and things that were not book-related. And that seemed like a They're little not bit refrigerators. <laughs> of a risky strategy for some. Um, you know, some analysts thought that might kind of water down the brand a little bit. Actually, the revenues from non-book items were growing, so those investments did pay off, uh, but he just didn't turn the company around quickly enough, and they are looking for someone new. Now, who did he replace? He replaced Michael Hoosby, who is now the executive chairman of Barnes & Noble Education. And before Michael Hoosby, it was William Lynch. And William Lynch was really the chief architect of their failed digital strategy. He invested everything in the Nook. That was going to be their way to get a foothold in the digital marketplace and really go head-to-head -head with Amazon on that front. And instead, they just lost a ton of money. So who's in charge now? So Len Leonard Riggio, who is the founder and the executive chairman of Barnes & Noble, was scheduled to retire as executive chairman this September. I spoke to him when that was announced this spring, and he was looking forward to reading a lot. He said possibly traveling and going back to all these leisure activities. So he's actually going to stay on in the interim until the board finds a new CEO, and he's going to be running the company. Back to its origins. Exactly. 
It sounds like they are still struggling a bit to figure out what the proper strategy is to deal with the competition from the internet. Exactly. And, you know, their their most recent earnings report in June, we really saw how much they're struggling. They reported a loss of $36 million, which was compared to a loss of $19 million the same period the previous year. And what's even more troubling is that other physical bookstores are doing better. This has actually become a surprisingly good environment for physical bookstores, independent stores are growing. Their sales are up. And overall, bookstore sales rose 2.5% last year, which was the first time that bookstore sales had grown in, I think, seven years, according to the Census Bureau. And you're seeing ebook sales dropping. Physical sales of print books are up. So it's sort of surprising that Barnes & Noble has not been able to kind of take advantage of, of all those shifts in the landscape. This is hard to hear as a native New Yorker because Barnes & Noble has been a longtime New York institution. And yet, even in the city, they've had stores close in recent years. Are they expanding anywhere? Are they opening stores? Or is it all about closures? That's a great question. So they are still closing stores, but they're closing fewer stores than they have been recently. And they are opening four new concept stores, which people were really excited to hear. These are apparently going to have cafes that serve alcohol, which is great news for parents that show up at Barnes & Noble with their kids. It's like the Alamo Draft House Cinema (laughs) for Exactly. So I think that's a clever way to get people to spend more time in the stores. They're going to have cafes. Get them drunk. (laughs) Get them drunk. I mean, Starbucks was nice, but really, let's get let's get some alcohol. <laughs> They've actually drawn some lessons from, I think, the resurgence of independent stores. You're seeing individual Barnes & Noble outlets emphasizing the personal taste of their booksellers, catering to their communities in a little more specific way. They're absolutely drawing on the author community who, you know, the authors and publishers have been very supportive of Barnes & Noble. They'll sign special copies for Barnes & Noble that they won't sign for other stores and things like that um, just to help essentially help the chain get back on its feet. It's funny because, you know, there was a while where Barnes & Noble was really the bad guy um, putting independents out of business. And now the fortunes have been reversed and Barnes & Noble is struggling. Independents are coming back and everyone's rooting for Barnes & Noble. It's kind of the underdog. It's like the new shop around the corner. Exactly. (laughs) All right. We will let Alexandra go back to her lozenges and her bed. Thank you Thank you. You know what, we are going to seduce them. We're going to seduce them with our square footage and our discounts and our deep armchairs and our cappuccino. cappuccino. That's right. They're going to hate us at the beginning, but But we'll get get them in the air. Megan Daum joins us now. She is our newest columnist, writing a column about memoir called Egos, and her first column is in this week's issue of the Book Review. Megan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. And I should mention that you are the author most recently of The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion, a book of essays, many of them personal, and you've written other books, including a memoir. Yes. Are you a reader of memoirs? Do you read a lot of them? I tend to read them in the context of being a teacher often or Mm -hmm. a reviewer. Um, I I like memoirs a lot. It's not necessarily the first thing I go to. I I mean, if I had all the free time in the world, I would just bring a stack of novels wherever I was going and and read those. But um, memoir, it's a really interesting form, I think, particularly in this moment in cultural history when we're talking a lot about ourselves and talking a lot about people talking about themselves. So it's definitely, um, there's a lot of food for thought in reading them. And you've written a memoir as well as personal essays. One of the interesting things is that there's this very fluid line between personal essays and memoir that I feel like has become more 
you know, kind of... Uh, and I used to be much more militant about this. A, a couple of years ago, I would have said uh, a personal essay is distinct from a memoir. A personal essay shall never uh, darken the doorway of a memoir. But I do. I agree. I think fluid is exactly the right word. I mean, you know, memoirs, I think, tend to work best when the scale of ambition is relatively small. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. What I'm saying is when the author has set out to tell a particular story about a particular time yes. and used his or her own life as a as a lens through which to look at bigger, more universal ideas. That's usually what, what works. What memoirs do you think have done that really well? Oh, there are so many. I mean, Darkness Visible is one of my favorite books, mm-hmm. William Styron's memoir about depression. I mean, it's one of those books that the parameters are very narrow, but it goes very deep. It's right. like a deep dive. Right. It's and like I, you can get to know someone very well yes. by focusing on one thing. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. I mean, you know, recently I loved um, Bernard Cooper's My Avant-Garde Education, which came out last year, which talks about going to art school in the early 70s, mm-hmm. I believe, and w- at, at CalArts in, in Southern California and when that school was just starting. And, and you know, he talks about himself and he talks about, you know, coming of age and coming out and his family. But really, it's a book about art itself and the avant-garde and ask the question, what is art? So that's something that I've read recently that is very graceful in how it takes on its immediate subject matter and then touches on much, much larger, more abstract ideas. You've written a memoir also. Life would be perfect if I lived in that house. Yes. Okay. But in writing that memoir, um, did that change in any ways your approach as a reader of memoir? Did you appreciate the challenge more? Did you become more sort of critical in your assessment of other memoirs? Oh, I'm probably more charitable. As we all are when we publish books, that was a book that is really about my interest slash obsession with shelter and real estate and the idea of home, interior spaces, and more broadly, uh, the larger cultural fixation on those things. The memoir I wrote was about this interest, but it used my sort of life trajectory um, up to a certain point as a as a framework for, for talking about that stuff. So, okay, new column. It's called Egos. You get to write about memoirs um, every other month and choose whichever memoirs you're interested in uh, to write about. Do you have a general idea of how you want to approach the column? Yeah, I think what I'd like to do is approach it as an essay, uh, first and foremost. I mean, I will be reviewing the books insofar as I'm going to be talking about whether or not I like them and and, um, what works about them and what perhaps does not. But yeah, I mean, what's really exciting about this is that I get to sort of look at what's out there and see if there are certain themes that come up, if there are things people are talking about. Um, and um, take, uh, you know, three or four or five books, whatever, and, you know, talk about how they all sort of uh, approach a given theme um, in different ways. So let's talk about your first column. Um, You chose three books on a theme. What is that theme and what were you hoping to explore? So the theme uh, for this column is uh, stories of not only coming out as a teenager, um, but um, in two of the cases, actually, um, 
young men, boys who were gay and were put through um, reparative therapy, ex-gay therapy, as it's called. Uh, One of the books is Boy Erased by Gerard Conley, and I really hope I'm pronouncing his first name right. I'll say Gerard, and one of us will be right. So Gerard Conley, what happens with him? So this is uh, a young man who's growing up in the Bible Belt in the South. His father is a Baptist preacher. Um, extremely conservative evangelical Christian community, and um, he goes to college and and is outed uh, and ends up being put almost immediately into this ex-gay therapy program. The remarkable thing about this is that this is actually taking place in 2004, not long ago. What I found really interesting about um, this book uh, was the way it juxtaposed with another uh, memoir that I talked about um, by Stephen Gaines, which is called One of These Things First. And this is about a young man who is growing up uh, gay in Brooklyn in the 1950s and 60s and is also put into ex-gay therapy, but in a very different context. He actually checks himself into the Payne Whitney Clinic in Manhattan. Of his own volition. Of his own volition. Um, He has this really romantic idea about psychiatric institutions, which he's gotten from watching films like Splendor in the Grass. And he watched the wrong movies. (laughs) It's just this girl interrupted, was not out yet. And so it's this incredibly madcap, hilarious, also heartbreaking, but ultimately, really, I've never read anything like this. He actually um, talks about going into this institution as if he sort of sat down at the Algonquin Round Table or something. He, he, he kind of finds himself and comes of age and, and comes into himself despite being in this reparative therapy. And mm-hmm. so I think to, um, to look at these two books uh, together was, was really interesting and, and, and really fun, frankly. And the third book is called My Son Wears Heels, One Mom's Journey from Clueless to Kick-Ass by Julie Tarney. That sounds like very different from these other two books. Yeah, um, very different. But also, again, this is a story of um, told from the mother's point of view of um, a boy growing up in the suburbs of Milwaukee. Um, and in this case, they're not really sure what's going on. Um, from a very young age, uh, this child is identifying as... There's definitely a fluidity. He he talks about feeling like a girl. He wants to dress in girls' clothes. He wants to play with girls' toys. Um, and what's really interesting about this is the question isn't so much, is he gay, but what is he exactly? At one point, as a child, he says, "Well, maybe I'm bisexual." And mm-hmm. and it you know a lot of points it's like, "Well, maybe he just you know is a is a cross dresser." And at some points, there's just talk of maybe. Um, this has more to do with wanting to dress a certain way than, you know, having one particular sexual orientation. So what I loved about this book was the way um, that it was the mother told the story, but really almost anticipated the very basic questions that people would have in watching this from afar. And she does it in such a compassionate way. And she's almost like a case study in, in supportive parenting. It's like she tries so hard and is so well-intended and is so rigorous about educating herself and other people. And it's really, uh, it was it was a lovely book to read in a lot of ways, um, particularly uh, in the context of, of these other books where you're seeing um, really different parenting styles and different cultural contexts. 
One of the fascinating things to me about books about gender identity and sexuality um, is how much they've changed just in the last like 10 years. I mean, or in 15 years, I remember um, there was a period where at least a lot of people I knew were writing books um, about uh, growing up with a gay parent. Um, or a transgender parent. There was Noel Howey uh, edited um, an anthology of um, essayists writing about their parents having been gay or transgender when they were growing up. Um, and then she wrote her own memoir, too. Um, and there was this sense of um, shame and secrecy and fear around that. And then what's interesting is that the memoirs now of children of gay parents and the attitude now is you people are like from another era. Like what were you, that's crazy that you were hiding the fact that your parents uh, were gay and the approach has just changed so radically. And then similarly with this book, My Son Wears Heels, she's clearly not approaching it from the way a parent of um, a child who is questioning or sexual identity and sexuality would have 10 years ago as like a complete crisis, but instead as something to just kind of figure out and be supportive. That's very true. And that said, it's really important to note that My Son Wears Heels takes place largely in the 1990s. So uh, it's it's notable that she doesn't have access to the Internet. I think the book starts in 1992. Um, what's fascinating about, the, you know, looking at these three books together is the way their timestamps are so important. I mean, we have a coming coming out story taking place in the 1960s. We have one that's taking place in the 1990s, and we have one that's taking place in the, in the early aughts. And ironically, uh, the one that takes place most recently involves sort of the most hideous treatment of this young man and seems the most retrograde in certain ways. So I think it really underscores the degree to which geography, culture, yes. region, um, you know, perhaps uh, overrides um, time periods in a lot of ways. Was there a standout among these three books? And the titles again are My Son Wears Heels by Julie Tarney, Boy Erased by Gerard Conley, and One of These Things First by Stephen Gaines. Well, they're all very much worth reading. Otherwise, I would not have written about them. But I have to say, I love this Stephen Gaines memoir, One of These Things First. I think it is just such a treasure. It is so sharply written. It has such... Uh, it is so funny. He has such control over his humor. He's really a, a comedian and a raconteur, but also um, just quite... I love it. I've I've really never read anything like it, and it was an absolute delight. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's definitely a recommendation. Um, just looking ahead a bit, because you're already, I know, at work on your next column, is it hard to figure out what to do? Because, I mean, in terms of themes, there are so many. We, we at the book review, we started this column um, in large part not only to have you write for us, uh, but also uh, because we get so many memoirs, and a lot of them are really interesting. Yeah, they're a pretty um, direct reflection of what people are thinking about sort of more more largely. I mean, I, I'm really interested because I teach nonfiction writing a lot. So I've had just so many students coming in and writing memoirs. And so I think it's almost um, it's almost like a psychological journey as well as a literary one when you're when you're reading these things and thinking about which 
books you want to read and what's worth Oh, I reading. think of it as self-help, too, in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> read about other people's problems. Yeah, <laughs> but also just why people like memoirs is that there is this feeling kind of like we're all in this together. This, you know, the, the human condition is a thorny place to be. And I think maybe in the in the age of Facebook, when everyone is sort of, as you put it, curating themselves and kind of advertising themselves, uh, to read a memoir where somebody's actually put that stuff aside and really told a story in, a, in an honest and um, vulnerable way is is refreshing. Well, now you know why we're so happy to have Megan Daum as our newest columnist. Megan, thank you for being here. Thank you. If you like hearing from authors and reviewers on the podcast, help us spread the word. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and rate the show or leave us a comment, preferably favorable. We'd love to hear what you think. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. My colleagues at the Book Review, Greg Coles and John Williams, join us now to talk about what we and other people are reading. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. All right, Greg, we're going to put much of the burden on you because you are coming back from what I feel like was a nine-week vacation, although it was probably only two weeks, and so had time to read. I I did, in fact, have time uh, to read. I spent two weeks on the beach in Cape Cod. I was on Nantucket Island for for a couple of weeks. Are you feeling terrible for him? (laughs) It was really glorious. The weather was great. We were at the beach every day, and I um, I brought a lot of books. Um, you know, when I read for pleasure instead of for work, um, I I have, have kind a of, lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, there are kind of three different approaches I take to my serious reading. I you know I also read for you know just um, smart thrillers and and mysteries and things like that. But in in my serious literary reading. The three strands that I do are going back and filling in holes, gaps in my reading. I know everyone has them, and there are a lot of classics that I missed. I wasn't a, an English major, and uh, so I'm kind of always going back and plugging in kind of curriculum books that that have passed me by. People may remember on the last podcast I was reading the William Maxwell novel So Long, See You Tomorrow, and I finished that on this Nantucket trip. Um, it's you know classic from the mid-20th century, a very short, spare, beautiful novel. It's, it's really just incredible. Another strand of reading that I do is going back and rereading books that I've read in the past and and really enjoyed. And uh, this time around, um, I did that with Saul Bellow's Herzog, which became my beach reading for most of this trip. That is not traditional beach reading. I mean, it's <laughs> now, a great book. Yeah, and, but parts of it are set on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it has that element to it. Um, not traditional beach reading, and my copy now is just waterlogged and bloated. Um, it's already a, a fairly bloated book, very different from the William Maxwell, um, where that one is spare and precise and like haiku. The uh, Herzog kind of contains everything. It, it's multitudes. Um, it, it's it's a crazy book and just a, a great book. Uh, brings in the whole world. And I last read it probably about twenty years ago. Um, and it's it's a very different book when you read it in uh, what I will admit is middle age now, <laughs> uh, as opposed to a young man reading it. Um, middle age has been delayed, by the way. We've we've now we put it into the fifties. Oh, I'm not. That's what I, I, I tell okay. people. About. That's <laughs> yes. I've, I've reallocated. Now, now that John it's is just in his forties. Been... He tells people that. <laughs> right. We're redefining. <laughs> middle age. But do go on. 
So, you know, I, I read that with great pleasure and uh, almost for the first time um, because reading it as a middle-aged man, as a almost middle-aged man, is a different experience from reading it as a young man. Um, and it maybe felt more profound or truer to my life experience now. The third strand of pleasure reading that I do is um, kind of catching up on contemporary writers um, whom I have not read for work uh, or whom I have not kind of I had gone into the oeuvre um, for work. I thought you were going to say coloring books. <laughs> I was hoping that was the third strand. No, but now you showed everyone that you were, in fact, a French major. <laughs> um, or, or just pretentious. <laughs> that too. You can be both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so a couple of years ago for work, I did read um, Jenny Offal's uh, novel, Department of Speculation, which I loved. And I had one not of our best read, books of the year. I, I had not read any other Jenny Offal uh, to that point or since that point. And so while I was on Nantucket, I went into – they've got a couple of great independent bookstores there. Um, and I went into one of them, Mitchell's uh, bookstore, and um, found what, what I think might be Jenny Offel's first novel. It's called Last Things. It's a coming-of-age novel about – and I say coming-of-age. She's eight years old. Uh, her parents are splitting up, and it's uh, the, the father is kind of a cold rationalist, and the, the mother is a big dreamer, um, very creative, uh, imaginative type. It tackles some of the same, uh, same themes as Department of Speculation, but from the point of view of an eight-year-old girl. Um, I have been reading – a memoir by a Southern writer named Harry Cruz called A Childhood. Cruz died in 2012, and there was a biography published of Is him. Is this another one of your obit reads? Where you read he, the obituary no, and then, okay. No, mm-hmm. but I did go back to the obituary because it was written by Marguerite Fox, who is just a master of the form, as I think most of our listeners probably know. Um, and so when he died in 2012, she wrote the obit. I had heard about him a lot, but I was inspired to read it delayed, sort of. But I read Dwight Garner's review of a biography of him, I think, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And Dwight, in his usual way, um, just inspired me to to pick up the book. Harry Cruz was, is very much a Dwight kind of a writer. Yeah, he was who very convincing he? on him. He is a incredibly strange and very American <laughs> character who um, grew up in rural Georgia. He was born during the Great Depression in small town Georgia to, you know, very poor people who were tenant farmers and had, you know, violent, very colorful lives. This book, which is a fairly slender memoir, uh, I put in the category that I would call too good to fact check. I mean, some <laughs> of these stories about his dad that he that he's telling that happened before he was even born um, are just incredible. It has a great first sentence, which is, um, my first memory is of a time 10 years before I was born, and the memory takes place where I have never been and involves my daddy, whom I never knew. <laughs> and that's very much the tone of it. It's, it's like tall tales, but real. And Marguerite Fox in her obituary said that uh, his, he was famous for writing novels with incredibly weird characters. One guy eats a car four ounces <laughs> at a time. Um, there are snake handlers and um, you know sideshow freaks and, and lots of drama. And Fox wrote that reading a childhood makes you realize that for freakish drama, deep tragedy, and the blackest of black comedy, anything in Mr. Cruz's fiction was resoundingly eclipsed by the facts of his own life. You know, his dad was uh, died before he was two, and then his mother remarried a few months later his dad's older brother, who was a violent alcoholic. The things that happen in here are just, they, you know, I think Fox also wrote, they out-Gothic Southern Gothic. 
and he but he's a great writer he's a very vivid writer he's a funny writer he's a little there's a little bit of macho sentimentality in it that gets a little too much for me sometimes but i would definitely recommend it somebody uh, who's a big fan of that book is mary carr and she talks about it in the art of memoir um, mm. as uh, one of the books that just seized her early on at opening up the possibilities of memoir um, and its voiciness was the thing she, she talks a lot about voice in memoir and this is the example she turns to over the voice over. is incredibly yeah. gripping from the from the beginning Pamela, how about you? What are you reading these days? Oh, no. Here comes my mea culpa um, because I'm really not reading a lot. Um, I, I have a good excuse, which is that I'm now on season five of Veep, um, <laughs> as I think perfectly good. I'm rereading. Um, I is re- I've been rereading um, the Harry Potter series now with my third child, um, mm. trying to prepare him for an impending trip to London, which <laughs> we expect to be Harry Potter heavy. We don't want him to be left out of that. How old is he? He's seven. So he's a, I, he's really a little bit young for Harry Potter. Okay. <laughs> um, and I feel or... bad because I kind of hate the idea of like pushing kids into Harry Potter. I'm like, mm. if you have to push your kids into Harry Potter, then, you know, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> but so our policy with our older kids was, you know, read it when you're ready for it. Um, and when and you then, want to. And when you want to. And, um, and then you can watch the movies. Have you read the play? I have not read the play because I'm seeing the play on Sunday uh, and I don't want any spoilers. My so kids gobbled not... it up on vacation. All right. <laughs> don't do not say a word. And, so we'll get a theater uh, review from you when you're back as well as right. what you're reading. I was rereading a little bit of Les Miserables, but I fear I've mm. talked people's ears off about that novel enough. So I won't go into that. <laughs> and then when it comes to my Hamilton, um, my, my real reading, um, I'm still in the Revolutionary War. So it's, it's humiliating. I'm going to talk instead a little bit about about what other people are reading mm. on the bestseller list this week. Um, the books that debut, being a little bit Greg here, um, <laughs> Greg's still partly on vacation. Uh, Jacqueline Woodson's uh, first book for grown-ups in years. Um, she's known primarily as a children's book author, but it's not her first adult novel. Um, she debuts at number 16 with Another Brooklyn. Then we have B.A. Paris with Behind Closed Doors um, at number 15. Susan Wiggs with Family Tree at 13, about a tragedy in L.A. that sends a woman uh, to a Vermont farm. Then debuting at number five, Three Sisters, Three Queens from the very prolific Philippa Gregory. Not only writes a lot, but writes long. I don't know how that <laughs> how she does it. Um, and then another frequent uh, contributor to the bestseller list, Catherine Coulter, debuts at number two with her new novel, Insidious, another um, FBI thriller. On the nonfiction list, I think the most interesting thing um, is that Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, the memoir um, by this white working class uh, guy who uh, grew up in the Rust Belt and went on to graduate from Yale Law School. That book is now number one. Um, So that kind of had like a slow and then very fast build. That's probably the most notable thing on nonfiction. There are only two new books. Powerhouse by James Andrew Miller. That was reviewed by James B. Stewart in our pages uh, recently. That's the history of CAA, the, the big um, Hollywood talent agency. And then the other new uh, book is Adnan's Story by Rabia Chowdhury. And that is about Adnan Syed, um, who was the subject of Serial. That book debuts at number 14. And that is all. So <laughs> thanks, Greg. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.